0: So, Holy Spirit, help us know how that scripture can help us, and how it applies to us, and how we can live out of the truths that are in it. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Good to see all of you. Hello to those of you who are watching on the podcast. A consultant in our church told me about a company that she was helping where all the employees could talk about was this one particular manager, kind of manager from hell. And this manager would, she would always yell at people, she'd berate them whenever she could, but kind of the most amazing thing she did was whenever anyone kind of got on her nerves, she would draw the kids game hangman on a whiteboard with that person's name above it, and whenever that person messed up, she'd draw a line. Sort of the implication being that when the, the figure was completed, that person's job was over. And some of you are like, I'm so glad I don't work in a place like that. And others of you are like, what's wrong with that? I'm going to implement that tomorrow, right? <laughs> work. That's what we've been talking about. We've been doing this sermon series on how we can experience the resurrected Easter kind of life every day of the week, wherever we are, especially at our work. And all of us have work. Students, homemakers, uh, retired people, all of us have work to do. And we've said that work is good, that work is holy. It's how God uses our skills in the world and shapes us and molds us. But even more than that, Jesus' salvation isn't just for individuals. It is also about how He, his mission to restore the entire created order. And your work is an important part of that. You are God's plan A to bring redemptive change to your office, your school, your neighborhood. And it's needed. Because while work is good and holy and all of that, it's also broken and fallen. And it can become very impersonal, can become very dehumanizing, like the story that I just told you. Coworkers who backstab each other, bosses who run all over people, schools and offices that are pressure cookers of stress and anxiety, unfair compensation practices... Or you know what, just feeling lost in like, you know, Am I just a cog in some machine Or am I just a number in payroll Do they even know who I am This week some of us were in a meeting with Rich Leatherberry Who's our mission pastor here And we just hired Rich's daughter, Chelsea For a part-time job this summer And we were letting Rich know that we were glad That we've hired her for this part-time job And he said, yeah, I'm glad too I just hope they don't mix up our paychecks You know, that's us one leatherberry, it's just, you know, cogs in a machine, you know, all of that. Chelsea would be super excited, though, right? Well, in the story we read today where King Saul is hurling spears at his employee David, we get a picture of a dehumanizing workplace, right, to say the least. And the background is Saul is Israel's first king, but he disobeys God, so God says he can't be king anymore. Now, God still loves Saul, It's just that he says, eventually I'm going to make someone else king, and that someone is David. And in the chapter just before the one we read, David killed Goliath in the famous story, and in response, Saul gave David a job as commander of some of his armies. But Saul is so threatened by David's success that it says the next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. While David was playing the lyre, Saul had a spear and he hurled it saying, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. If nothing else, this can make you feel better about your boss. Now, you may wonder, why does it say the evil spirit came from God? Well, back then, uh, the Israelites attributed everything to God, whether God actually sent it or, or allowed it. We might say God allowed it to happen. But also, God is the source in that God is the one who has chosen as David as the next king, and that's what's got Saul so bugged. So in a way, God really is the source of Saul's insanity. And I wonder, though, do you ever feel this way in your volunteer work or school or, or office that sort of, figuratively speaking, people are throwing spears at you, saying nasty things, undermining you in various ways? Or maybe you're Saul in this story. You know, most of us will identify with David all the ways we're being abused, but, you know, most of us also are maybe sort of being Saul, sort of throwing some spears at some folks in our office as well, metaphorically speaking. So offices become very dehumanizing places. So how do we deal with that? How do we make our offices, our volunteer work, our schools, places where human beings can thrive, places fit for human beings? Flourishing, Because you know what? We're not just pac- passive victims in all of this. Jesus empowers us to be God's plan A for redemptive change, to help other people thrive, but also for our own sakes, so that we can thrive and work becomes less stressful and more joyful. So to humanize our workplaces, our volunteer places, to make them places for human flourishing, I think we need to ask ourselves three questions. And actually, these three don't just apply to work, but relationships in general. And the first is this, am I about God's kingdom or my own? Now, I have a little bit of compassion for King Saul in this story because you've got to understand, in the chapter right before this, the giant Goliath had for 40 days threatened the Israelite army. And the Israelites are terrified because he's huge. And Saul is Israel's first king, and he feels all of that pressure. Every night he wanders around the soldiers' camps, all eyes looking on him, everyone questioning his leadership, everyone whispering, he doesn't have the stuff. He doesn't have what it takes. He's our king. He's supposed to lead us, and now look what's happened. Now we're in this mess. We didn't meet our quarterly goals. The project didn't ship on time. Test scores are down. Already Saul is being dehumanized in a system bigger than he is. Pressure and stress dehumanize our workplaces. So then a man named Jesse sends his youngest son, David, to take some bread and cheese to his older brothers who are fighting in the army. And David is sort of the runt of the litter. So Jesse says to David, just take the food to them, but first sign of trouble, drop the cheese and bread and run away. So that's kind of Jesse's mentality. But David does the opposite. David steps forward, kills Goliath, conquers the Philistines. They all run away, and everyone is stoked. Stoketh were they in the King James. (laughs) Super excited, Goliath's dead. Yay, David, go, David. So Saul, at this point, does what every good manager and every good leader would do. He turns around and he says, I hired him. That's my hire. You You guys were doubting the kid, but I saw something in him. I hired him. But then, as they're returning back, the women start to sing this song. Saul has slain his thousands. And David, his tens of thousands. Ouch. Right? That'd be like if last week after Kendi preached, y'all came in here singing, you know, Dudley's preached some sermons, but Kendi changed our lives. You're not all thinking that, are you? <laughs> you, you just remember, I hired her. I hired, my hired, my hire Actually, it was a team of people, but I'll take credit. So now, when this is happening, so now, as a leader, Saul has to figure out what he's made of. Is it about your kingdom, Saul? or God's? Your title, your stuff, or God's? You hired the right guy, king. The board is happy. The customers are happy. But can you be happy with what God is doing in your midst, knowing, trusting that if you pursue God's agenda, you're going to be blessed too, even if David's getting the credit. See, God is doing more here than thwarting Saul's career ambition. He's raising up in David Israel's greatest king. The guy who's going to unite the kingdom, write the Psalms, become Jesus' ancestor. And in the process, there is a blessing for Saul, which I'll get to in a minute. If he could just see it, but he can't. Because if our work is just a means of self-fulfillment, as it is for Saul, my title, my achievements, my prestige, that crushes us, as it does for Saul. Pastor Tim Keller Says this, if our work, if we make work only about self-fulfillment, then our aggressiveness becomes abuse, our drive becomes burnout, our self-sufficiency becomes self-loathing. But if our work is also about God's bigger plan to make all things new, God's bigger rescue mission, and our work is a part of that. Now work is more fulfilling and actually less stressful. Because we're about something bigger than ourselves and we're being pushed along by something bigger than ourselves. But Saul doesn't get that. It says Saul was very angry. They have credited David with tens of thousands, but me with only thousands. And that's the key phrase. But me. But me. What about me? What about my needs? Have we talked about me lately? Me. How many narcissists does it take to change a light bulb? One. He holds it and the world revolves around him. This is Saul in this moment, right? Me, me, me. He's so... And what's kind of interesting is that, that this refrain the women use, Saul has slain his thousands and... David is 10,000, 10,000, was a, just a common Hebrew idiom of the day that meant lots and lots, sort of like we might say forever in today. Just an idiom, but that Saul takes it so personally indicates how much he's made it about his kingdom, about him, and that makes him miserable. So different, so different than Saul's son, Jonathan, who the text says made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David. That's not just an act of friendship. That's a political action. It's the royal robe. And he's signaling, Jonathan is signaling that even though he is the king's son, David, not Jonathan, is going to be the next king. See, for Jonathan, it's not about his kingdom. It's about the bigger thing that God is doing and being a part of that. And who in this story looks happier? Saul, who's fighting to hang on to his stuff? Or Jonathan, who's given his stuff up to be part of God's bigger rescue mission. And because he knows that there's going to be a blessing in this for him, too. He gets to be David, the king's best friend. You know, still part of the action, none of the pressure of being king. It's a good deal. Sort of like how I feel about boats. Boats are awesome. They're so much fun, but they're so much work. That's why it's good to be friends with people who have boats. Right? Let them handle all that stuff. You just go have the fun. Better to be friend of the king, maybe, than king. And there's a blessing in this for Saul as well, if he could just see it. Because even though David has been chosen Israel's next king, Saul still is king. In fact, Saul gets to be king for 40 years. That's a pretty good run, don't you think? And if Saul just could have seen what God was doing, the bigger picture, Saul maybe at the end of his career could have become a father figure for David, a a trusted mentor, an advisor, someone to whom David would look up. But he missed all that because he couldn't see it. See, when Saul heard the women singing, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands, that's when Saul should have slammed on the brakes of his chariot, looked at David and said, boy, from now on, you ride with me. Together, you and me, together. We're the 11,000 club. Come on, David, let's do it. But he didn't do that. Instead, Saul says, what more can he get but the kingdom? Well, whose kingdom are we talking about, Saul? Yours or God's? See, when we're about God's kingdom, less stress, more joy. Our kingdom, more stress, more frantic striving. It's the difference between being joy-filled Jonathan and insane Saul, you pick. Now, let's say you're David in this scenario. You're the one getting the stuff thrown at you. How do you handle it? That's a whole other sermon, but just really briefly, first, you know, if you're in a really toxic environment, you probably need to leave. Different job. David eventually has to flee. But even in that, David is still pursuing God's kingdom first by always honoring Saul, never undermining him. And if you're in that situation, know that God can use that difficult person or place for good in your life, as God does with David here. You know, Saul keeps sending David out to fight all these battles, hoping that David's going to get killed. The result is David just wins all the battles and becomes even more the hero. But God used that to help prepare David to be a king. David learns in all that how to lead an army. Kings need to know to do that. David learns to rely on God alone. Kings need that as well. He's he's preparing David to be king because David was seeking God's kingdom first. All the other things were taken care of. There's a verse somewhere in the New Testament about that. Your kingdom or God. Second question to ask to make our workplaces places where human beings can thrive, more humanized. Second question, what are the idols being exposed by the problems in your job? For our purposes, I'll define idol as a good thing that we make an ultimate thing. And idols control us, and so they start to dehumanize our workplace because we're serving the idols. So, for instance, in some companies, the idol is profit and profit only. Now, profit is a good thing, but it's not an ultimate thing, and it's not the only thing. There are other things, like people matter. Transparency matters. Integrity matters. Those things matter. But those things can get eclipsed if we make profit our idol. In my former career as an academic, prestige was our idol. Mostly because we didn't get paid very much, so that was all we had. So you know what? What you know? You, where'd you graduate? You know what school did you? What school did you go to? What? Where'd you get your degree? What names can you drop? Where have you taught? All of that stuff. Prestige. In the English department, graduate students used to play this game called humiliation. And the way humiliation worked was someone would read a list of famous authors and works and if you hadn't read that, you had to admit that you hadn't read it in front of all your colleagues and they would shame you. It was a dark and terrible place, the <laughs> graduate school there. I mean, was, but that's, that's the result of idolatry, right? And making this thing this sort of ultimate thing. If the idol is profit only, that may result in a workaholic culture or unfair compensation practices that dehumanize people. I just heard about an experiment one company did that exposed some of their idols. They gave people aptitude tests for sales jobs and put that together with the schools that they had gone to and hired people based on the highest scores. But they also hired people who flunked the aptitude test as part of their experiment. So now tomorrow when you look at your coworkers, you can go, oh, now I know why you're here. That makes sense. But be careful because the ones who flunked outsold the other salesmen 57%. You know why? Because they also tested for one other thing, attitude. And the so-called dummies thought that they could do the job, and that's why they sold so much more than the other people who'd passed this, th- th- passed this test. Their attitude mattered more than their aptitude totally exposed that company's idols of resumes and what school did you go to and all of that and, and, and so revealed how they had blinded themselves to who people really are in the fullness of who they are. You know, all of their gifts, which dehumanizes people when we can't see them for all that they are. So what idols are in your workplace? Ask the Holy Spirit to show you how you can be an agent of redemptive change in that place. Which brings me to my third question that we need to ask. Because part of the way we become agents of redemptive change and make our workplaces places where human beings can thrive is to ask this third question, and that is, do I make space for people in my work? See, Saul had no space for David in his chair. He was willing to use him but not empower him, not encourage him, not even listen to him. And there's a lot of that that goes on in our companies, right? Someone... Someone sent me a list of actual memos sent to employees from management in different companies. My favorite was from AT&T. It said, we know that communication is a problem, but this company will not discuss it with its employees. (laughs) Seems like a problem, don't you think? I mean, that's from a communications company, right? We're not going to talk about it. And there's a lot of that in in workplaces, volunteer scenarios, even, you know, no room for people. I mean, goodness, volunteer at school, you can just get run over, right, by the agenda and no space for people. And that can happen in the church as well. So how do we make room for people? Let me give you a couple of suggestions. It may mean doing performance reviews a little different so that you are encouraging people into their area of giftedness, even if that means they have to change jobs. You do that right, that employee will thank you. Chris Martinson, our modern worship director here, this guy right here, he used to work at Microsoft. And when he did, he would go in. As he went in in the morning, he would touch the doors of the offices and briefly pray for every person behind that door as he went into work. That's something you could do in your neighborhood even, just pray for the houses as you pass them by. And as you do, also ask God, how can I be a door through which your love walks for this person today, Lord? another way that you could make space for people it might mean just talking to someone that you work with and asking them real questions like you know what's been the what's been the best part of your last couple of weeks what's been the hardest part of your last couple of weeks boom now you got a real conversation that makes the workplace feel more human i've been volunteering in our high school group this spring and i'm by the way it's tons you should do it it's like tons of fun I have been so impressed by the way our high schoolers kind of humanize high school and all the pressures within it simply by encouraging one another. Lots of ways to create space for people. Now, I think it also needs to be said that another way to create space for people is that sometimes we may have to lovingly confront unjust structures, unfair practices, or unjust people or difficult people. We may have to lovingly confront them to create space for other people to thrive psychologist henry cloud tells a story of a guy who'd built a company and was going to retire in a few years and his son was going to take over the business but one day he saw his son just yelling at an employee in front of a bunch of other employees so he took his son into his office and he said i wear two hats around here i'm your father and i'm also the boss let me wear my boss hat for a minute you're fired I will not have that in my company. I will not allow people to be treated that way. We've given you a lot of chances to change, and you haven't changed this behavior, so you're out. You're fired. Now, let me put my dad hat on. Son, I heard you lost your job. Can I help? (laughs) He created space for people. Created space for his employees, for sure, right, so that they're not getting abused, but he also created space for his son's character to grow. He saw that there was something bigger going on than just profit. Human flourishing was at stake. I also think it took a lot of courage because can you imagine the dinner conversation that night? Like, talk about awkward family moments. But he created this space for that family to stop enabling bad behavior and give space for their son's character to grow and change and develop. He was a servant. And see, this is where Jesus just flips the script on us. When his disciples are arguing about who's going to be disciple number one and disciple number two, who's more important, blah, blah, blah. Jesus says, guys, 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 the Gentiles love to boss people around. Not so you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. We make space for people by being servants. And then Jesus says, let me give you an example. I'm the son of God, but I came to be a servant. Some of you right now are going, wait, are you telling me I, I, have, to be a, I have to give up my authority, my title, my, my prestige? you telling me I have to give all that up? No. Jesus is. Jesus is. Because, you see, the question is not how can I be the best leader, manager, boss, employee, teacher, parent that I can be. That's not the question. The question is wherever you are on Tuesday in whatever sphere of influence you have, and all of us have a sphere of influence even if it's just to the next cube over, Wherever you are on Tuesday, how can you be the best Jesus you can be there? God's kingdom or mine? What are the idols? Do I make space for people in my work? And to do all of these three things well, we need one last thing. And I preached on it a couple of weeks ago, but I want to give you the phrase again because it's the most important phrase in this sermon series. To do all this well, we need a redemptive imagination. You know, in church, we try to give you a blueprint do this, do that, all of that stuff. But you know what? The Bible, the Bible can't tell you who to marry, when to speak up, and when to be quiet. It can't tell you what, when to take the deal and when to walk away. That's about internalizing God's redemptive story. It's about knowing the right thing to do in the 80% of life situations where there is no handbook, no play-by-play blueprint. That takes creativity and knowing what to do in the moment. And that comes from two places. Scripture, so that we can get God's worldview in our minds out of which we make good decisions, and the Holy Spirit. And as we said earlier, today is Pentecost where we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit makes available to us all the creativity of God who created all of this. And He can give us a redemptive imagination and help us imagine and see the ways Jesus can make all things new right where we're going to be every day of the week and how we can be a part of that. So for this last sermon in this series... Here's what I want you to do with that blank piece of paper. Before you walk out the door, write down on that paper one way. It's in your bulletin, isn't it? All right. Write down. You were all looking blank, like the paper. Write down one way before you leave. Not now. I'm still preaching. But write down (laughs) one way before you leave uh, that you'd like to see the place, your workplace, volunteer place, how you'd like to see it more a place where human beings thrive. And maybe it's already great, but how can it be even more a place of human flourishing? Don't put your name on it. Just write that down. Drop it in the basket on the way out. And all week long, our prayer teams will be praying for your prayer request because we really do believe that Jesus has empowered all of us to make wherever we're going to be a place of human thriving and flourishing. And the Holy Spirit can empower us to do that. I'll close with this. A few weeks ago, I was talking with a man I know who, after 30 years— of running a nonprofit that he started, his board of directors came to him and said, you know what, people are getting upset with you. Wouldn't tell him who, wouldn't give him a chance to work it out, and just said, it's time for you to move on. Felt very dehumanizing. His whole life's work, just, you know, just gone in an instant. So I asked him, where is Jesus in all of this? And he said, well, now that, now that I'm unemployed, I have some extra time. So I started volunteering at Union Gospel Mission. And when he was there, he met a, a man who was a pimp and a drug dealer. And this guy wanted to become a Christian, but he said, if I do, you know, how am I going to make a living? What am I going to do? So my friend said, well, it sounds to me like you have skills in recruiting, running a business, managing, and understanding your customers. (laughs) And you've been using that in a really twisted way, but what if you applied that to something good? The pimp slash drug dealer said, never thought of it that way before. So became a Christian, and now with the help of some other people, he is getting out of that and starting to explore other ways to make a living that use his gifts and skills. Not only that, his entire family is doing the same thing. Now, that's going to take a while, it's in process, but he is headed absolutely in the right direction because my friend had a redemptive imagination, could see how Jesus wanted to make that situation new. He was about Jesus' kingdom, not his. He exposed some of the idols, and he made space for that man, humanized him, saw him for all of his gifts, all of his potential, all of his talents. And the result is that drug dealer is now on his way to thriving in healthy ways. But my friend also found some ways to thrive, even in unemployment. See, that's what Jesus does. And that's why your work is so very, very important, even in unemployment. Because as we all become agents of Easter, carriers of the resurrected kind of life, our offices, schools, neighborhoods, they become places of human flourishing, which is one step toward revival of folks coming to know jesus but also of jesus redeeming and reviving and making all things new wherever he has put us every day of the week as up there comes down here so thank god it's tuesday because that's where jesus is going to do some of his best work through you and through me so jesus you are the one that redeems you are the one that makes things new lord we ask that through your holy spirit you would help us be carriers of your resurrected kind of life. Lord, help us to bring about your healing, your renewal to the places we're going to be this week so that they become not dehumanized places, but places where human beings flourish and thrive. We give this to you in your name, Jesus. Amen.